This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Love Far From Home by Italo Calvino, translated by Tim Parks, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 1995. But it's always the same room. In every town, it seems that the landladies send the furniture on from town to town as soon as they know I'm coming. Even my shaving kit on the marble dresser top looks as if I'd found it there when I arrived rather than putting it there myself. The story was chosen by Salman Rushdie, who's the author of 11 novels, including The Enchantress of Florence, and most recently, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. Hi, Salman. Hi. So last time that you did this podcast, you chose a story by Donald Barthelme, and this time you've picked Calvino. What's why? In both cases, just because they were writers who I loved for being beautifully odd. (laughs) (laughs) Both, they're very strange writers. Both cryptic writers in a way. Yes, and I do think there's a kind of relationship between them, the kind of tone of voice that they use. Mm -hmm. And how did you first come to Calvino and start reading him? I think the first book of his I read actually was because I was asked to review his novel, If on a Winter's Night, A Traveller for the London Review of Books. And I was ashamed to admit that I had not read any Calvino mm-hmm. until then. So so I then put myself through a crash course of Calvino and discovered all these wonderful fables like The Baron in the Trees and mm-hmm. The Cloven Viscount and The Non-Existent Knight. <laughs> and, 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 of course, the beautiful book Invisible Cities about, right. about Marco Polo talking to Kublai Khan about essentially about menace. And... I ended up writing a piece which was not just a review of If on a Winter's Night, but was a sort of larger piece uh, about his work in general, you know, which somebody sent him and which he liked. Yeah. And, and, this uh, would, have, would have been in the early 80s or It would have late been about, 70s. yeah, about 1982 or something uh-huh. like that. And, and then he came to London to do a reading and I was asked to introduce him and mm-hmm. that's how we met. And did you become friends? Yeah, to to I mean I don't think we became close friends, but he was very he was very nice to me, uh, very encouraging of my. This was just after Midnight's Children, mm-hmm. and and in fact he then wrote in a way sort of in return for my piece in the London Review of Books, he he wrote a very long piece about Midnight's Children that appeared in the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, and was in a way the introduction of my work to an Italian readership. Um, and then we, yeah, we ran into each other every so often. And and uh, I was friendly with him and his wife, Esther, known as Chichita. And actually, I'm still in touch with the family. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, that his way of writing, that that sort of crypticness and also the, the use of these figures from history and from mythology is something that played a role in how you thought about your own writing? Yeah, I mean, he the first and most obvious connection that I made with someone else and Calvino was Borges. I think there is mm-hmm. something Borgesian about Calvino. Mm-hmm. And uh, both those writers are people who, you know, they just open windows in your head. They show you ways of thinking that you hadn't thought possible until you were shown them. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Calvino certainly was one of those. My opinion of which which is my favorite book keeps changing. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, when I back in the day when I first read Calvino, I really loved those fables like The Baron in the Trees. And nowadays I find myself, if I pick up a Calvino, it's more likely to be Invisible Cities. Mm-hmm. 
And this story that you're reading today, Love Far From Home, it was published in 1995, but it was written in 1946 when he was 22 or 23. Does it feel typical of his work to you? or? Well, it feels like a like a kind of bridge story because because when Calvino started out he was very influenced by Italian neorealism which was which was the thing mm-hmm. um, at the time he you know he used to write a column for the communist party newspaper unita in the piedmont edition mm-hmm. and uh, saw himself as being you know a person of the left and the people of the left in those days were supposed to write neorealism mm-hmm. or make neorealist films like Bicycle Thief and so on. Right. Um, and his first novel was of that sort. He wrote this novel called The Path to the Nest of Spiders, which is about a, a fighter in the mountains in Piedmont and a young boy that he befriends. And then he, Calvino, really rejected that writing. He just decided to sort of make this knight's move, mm-hmm. you know, into a much, much stranger place and then stayed in that stranger place for the rest of his life. And this story feels like it's, it's almost in the middle of those it's two things. It's on the cusp yeah, of that. it's on the yeah. cusp of that. Yeah, it doesn't have the sort of fabulous, fantastical no. touches of, of the later work, but it, you can feel something maybe brewing. Yes, and I mean, yeah. it is, I mean, the character in the story is deeply weird. <laughs> <laughs> I think the weirdness is that moment of transition where he's, he's I mean, he was sort of a philosopher, you know, and he was very interested in in the relationship between things and how we name them and how the naming of things can get in the way of our perception of the thing. Mm-hmm, you know? and, mm-hmm. and, and that's really, I think, what this story is about. And now here's Salman Rushdie reading Love Far From Home by Italo Calvino. Love Far From Home Occasionally a train sets off along the seafront railway and on that train there's me leaving because I don't want to stay in my sleepy cabbage patch village puzzling out the license plates of -of out-of-town cars like a kid down from the mountains sitting on the wall of a bridge, I'm off. Bye, village. In the world beyond my village, there are other towns, some on the sea, others, why I don't know, lost in the depths of the lowlands or alongside trains that arrive, how I don't know, after breathless journeys across the plains. Every so often I get off in one of these towns and I always have the look of the first-time traveller, Pockets stuffed with newspapers, eyes smarting with dust. At night in my new bed, I turn off the light and listen to the trams, and then think of my room in my village, so distant, it seems impossible that two places so far apart could exist at the same moment. And, where I'm not sure, I fall asleep. In the morning, outside the window, there's much to explore. If it's Genoa... Streets that go up and down, and houses above and below, and a rush of wind between them. If it's Turin, straight streets that never end when you look out over the railings of the balconies, and a double row of trees fading away beyond into white skies. If it's Milan, houses that turn their backs on you in fields of fog. But it's always the same room. In every town, it seems that the landladies send the furniture on from town to town as soon as they know I'm coming. Even my shaving kit on the marble dresser top looks as if I'd found it there when I arrived rather than putting it there myself. It has such an air of inevitability, it doesn't seem mine at all. I could live years in a room, after other years in other and absolutely similar rooms, 
without ever managing to feel it was mine or making my mark on it, because my suitcase is always ready for the next journey, and no town in Italy is the right town. No town has work to offer. No town would be good enough even if you did find work. There's always another and better town where you hope to go and work one day. So I put my stuff in the drawers exactly as it was in my suitcase, ready to be packed again. Days and weeks go by, and a girl begins to come to the room. I could say it was always the same girl, because at first there's no difference between one girl and the next. They're all strangers, and you communicate with them according to a prescribed ritual. You have to spend some time and do a lot of things with this girl in order to understand the whys and the wherefores. And then begins the enormous discoveries phase, the real, perhaps the only, exciting season of love. After that, spending still more time and doing still more things with this girl, you realize that the other girls were like this too, that you too are like this, that we all are, that everything she does is boring, as if repeated in a thousand mirrors. Bye, girlfriend. The first time a girl is coming to see me, let's say it's Maria Mirella. I hardly do anything all afternoon. I go on with the book I'm reading, then realize that for the last 20 pages I've been looking at the letters as though they were pictures. I write, but really I'm doodling all over the white paper, and all the doodles together become the sketch of an elephant, which I shade in so that it finally turns into a mammoth. Then I lose my temper with the mammoth and tear it up. It's a mammoth every time, you baby. I tear up the mammoth, and the bell rings. Maria Mirella. I run to open the door before the landlady can appear at the barred toilet window and start shouting. Maria Mirella would be frightened off. One day the landlady will die, strangled by thieves. It's written down there's nothing anyone can do about it. She thinks she could save herself by not going to open the door when they ring, not asking, who's that calling, from the barred toilet window. But it's a pointless precaution. The typesetters have already prepared the headline. Landlady Adelaide Braghetti strangled, killers unknown, and are only waiting for confirmation to lay out the page. Maria Mirella is there in the half-light, with her sailor's beret and its pom-pom, her heart-shaped mouth. I open the door and she's already prepared a whole speech to make as soon as she's inside. It doesn't matter what she actually says, just that we talk without a break as I lead her down the dark corridor to my room. It ought to be a long speech, so she won't get stuck in the middle of my room with nothing left to say. The room offers no prompts. It is hopeless in its squalor. The metal bedstead, the titles of unknown books in the small bookcase. Come and look out the window, Maria Mirella. The window is a French window with a waist-high railing but no balcony. You have to go up two steps to get to it. Outside, a reddish sea of tiles. We look at the roof stretching off all around as far as the eye can see, the stumpy chimneys puffing rags of smoke, the ridiculous balustrades on cornices where no one can ever look out, the low walls enclosing empty spaces on top of tumble-down houses. I put a hand on her shoulder, a hand that hardly feels like mine, feels almost swollen, as if we were touching each other through a layer of water. Seen enough? Yes. Down, then. We close the window and step down. We're underwater. We fumble with vague sensations. 
the mammoth roams about the room, ancient human fear. So I've taken off her sailor's beret and tossed it on the bed. No, I'm off now anyway. She puts the beret back on. I grab it and throw it up in the air, and now we're running after each other, playing with gritted teeth. Love. This is love. A scratching, biting, longing for each other. There's punching, too, on the shoulders, and then a weary, weary kiss. Love. Now we're smoking, sitting face to face, and the cigarettes are huge between our fingers. Again, like things held underwater, big sunken anchors. Why aren't we happy? What's the matter, asks Maria Mirella. The mammoth, I tell her. What's that, she asks. A symbol. What of? I don't know what of, I tell her, just a symbol. Then, look, one evening I was sitting on a riverbank with a girl. Called? The river was called the Po, and the girl Enrica. Why? Oh, nothing. I'd like to know who you've been with. Okay. So we were sitting on the grassy river bank. It was autumn. In the evening, the banks were already dark, and coming down the river was the shadow of two men rowing, standing up. In town, the lights were going on, and we were sitting on the bank on the other side of the river, and we were full of what they call love, that rough discovering and seeking of each other, that sharp taste of one another. You know, love. And I was full of sadness and solitude that evening on the banks of rivers and their black shadows. The sadness and solitude of new loves. The sadness and nostalgia of old loves. The sadness and desperation of future loves. Don Juan, sad hero. Ancient punishment. He was full of sadness and solitude and nothing else. Is it the same with me too? Maria Morella asks. What if you spoke a bit now, if you said what you know? I've started to shout with rage. Sometimes when you speak, you hear what might be an echo, and it drives you crazy. Maria Mirella says, What do you expect me to say about these things, you men? I don't understand. That's how it is. Everything women have been told about love is wrong. They've been told all sorts of things, all of them wrong, and their experience, all imprecise. And yet they trust the things they're told, not the experiences. That's why they're so wrong-headed. I'd like... You see, among us girls, she says, men, things you read, things whispered in your ear from when you're a little girl, you learn that that is more important than anything else, the aim of everything else. Then, you see, I realize that you never get to that, really to that, it's not more important than everything else. I wish it didn't exist at all, any of it, that you didn't have to think about it. Yet you're always expecting it. Maybe you have to become a mother to get to the real sense of everything. Or a prostitute. There. It's great. We all have our secret explanations. You have only to reveal her secret explanation and she's not a stranger anymore. We lie cuddled up together like two big dogs. Or river gods. You see, Maria Mirella says, maybe I'm afraid of you. But I don't know where to hide. There's nothing on the horizon, only you. You're the bear and the cave. That's why I'm cuddled up in your arms now, so that you can protect me from my fear of you. 
And yet it's easier for women. Life flows in them. The perpetuators. Nature is sure and mysterious in them. Once there was the great matriarchy, and the history of peoples flowed as simply as that of plants. Then the conceit of the drones. There was a rebellion, and we got civilization. I think as much, and don't believe it. Once I found I couldn't make it with a girl, I tell her, in a meadow on a mountain. The mountain was called Mount Bignone, and the girl Angela Pier. A big meadow. Among the bushes, I remember, with a cricket jumping on every leaf. That trilling of crickets. So high. No escape. She couldn't really understand why I got up then and said that the last cable car was about to leave. Because it was a place you got to by cable car. And going over the pylons, you felt yourself go empty inside. And she said, it's like when you kiss me. That was quite a relief, I remember. You shouldn't tell me this sort of thing, Maria Morella says. There'd be no more bear and no more cave either. All I'd be left with was fear all around. You see, Maria Morella, I tell her, we mustn't separate things from thoughts. The curse of our generation has been just that. Not being able to do what we thought or not being able to think what we did. I'll give you an example. Years ago... I changed my age on my identity card because I wasn't old enough. I went to a woman in a brothel. The brothel was at Via Calandra 15, and the woman was called Derna. What? Derna. We had the empire then, and the only novelty was that the women in the brothels were called Derna, Adwa, Harar, Dessier. Dessier? Even Dessier, as I recall. You want me to call you Dessier from now on? No. Well, to go back to that time, with this Derna, I was young, and she was big and hairy. I ran away. I paid what I had to pay and ran away. Going down the stairwell, I had the impression that everybody had come out to look and laugh at me. But that's not important. The thing is that as soon as I was home, that woman became something thought, and I wasn't afraid of her anymore. I began to want her, want her terribly, that's the point. For us, things thought are different from the things themselves. Right, says Maria Mirella. I've already thought of everything possible. I've lived hundreds of lives with my thoughts, of marrying, of having lots of children, of having abortions, of marrying someone rich, of marrying someone poor, of becoming a high society lady, of becoming a prostitute, a dancer, a nun, a roast chestnut seller, a star an MP, an ambulance woman, a sportswoman, hundreds of lives with all their details, and they all ended happily. But in real life, none of those things I think of ever happen. So every time I find myself imagining things, I get scared and try to stop the thoughts, because if I dream something, it will never come true. She's a nice girl, Maria Mirella. And by nice girl, I mean that she understands the difficult things I say and immediately makes them easy. I'd like to give her a kiss, but I realize that if I kissed her, I'd think of kissing the thought of her, and she'd think of being kissed by the thought of me, so I do nothing about it. Our generation must reconquer the things themselves, Maria Morella, I say. Think and do things at the same time, not do things without thinking them through.
we have to put an end to this difference between the things we think and the things themselves. Then we'll be happy. Why is it like this, she asks me. Well, it's not like this for everybody, I tell her. When I was a boy, I lived in a big villa with high balustrades, as high as a flight over the sea. And I spent my days behind those balustrades. I was a loner as a child, and for me everything was a strange symbol. The spacing of the dates hanging from the tufts of the stalks, the crooked arms of the cactuses, the strange patterns in the gravel on the paths. Then there were the grown-ups whose job it was to deal with things, real things. All I had to do was discover new symbols, new meanings. I stayed that way my whole life. I still live in a castle of meanings, not things. I still depend on the others, the grown-ups, the ones who handle things. But there are people who've worked at lathes ever since they were children, worked with a tool that makes things. They can have no other meaning than the things the lathe makes. When I see a machine, I look at it as if it were a magic castle. I imagine tiny men turning among the cogs. A lathe. God knows what a lathe is. Do you know what a lathe is, Maria Mirella? A lathe? I'm not sure right now, she says. They should teach everybody to use a lathe instead of to use a rifle. A rifle is just another symbolic thing with no real purpose. I'm not interested in lathes, she says. See? It's easier for you. You've got your sewing machines to save you, your needles and whatnot. You've got gas rings, typewriters even. You've only got a few myths to escape from, while everything is a symbol for me. But what is definite is that we've got to reconquer things. I'm caressing her very softly. So am I a thing, she asks. Ugh, I say. I found a small dimple on one shoulder above the armpit, soft with no bone beneath like the dimples in cheeks. I speak with my lips on the dimple. Shoulder like cheek, I say. It's incomprehensible. What, she asks. But she doesn't care in the least what I say to her. Race like June, I say, still into the dimple. She doesn't understand what I'm doing, but she likes it and laughs. She's a nice girl. See like a rival, I say, then take my mouth from her dimple and put my ear there to listen to the echo. All I hear is her breathing, and buried far away her heart. Heart like train, I say. There. Now Maria Mirella isn't a thought Maria Mirella plus a real Maria Mirella. She's Maria Mirella. And what we're doing now isn't something thought plus something real. The flight above the roofs and the house swaying high like the palm trees from the window of my house in the village. A great wind has taken our top floor and is carrying it across the skies and the red ranks of roof tiles. On the shore by my village, the sea has noticed me and is welcoming me like a big dog. The sea gigantic friend with small white hands that scratch the shingle. All at once, it sweeps over the buttress of the breakwater, rears its white belly and leaps over the mountains. Here it comes, bounding along cheerfully like a huge dog on the white paws of the undertow. The crickets fall silent. All the lowlands are flooded and the fields and vineyards till just one peasant raises his pitchfork and shouts. 
the sea disappears as though it had been drunk by the land. By sea. Going out, Maria, Mirella, and I run as fast as we can down the stairs before the landlady appears at the barred window and tries to understand everything, looking us in the eyes. That was Salman Rushdie reading Love Far From Home by Italo Calvino in a translation by Tim Parks. The story first appeared in the June 12, 1995 issue of The New Yorker and was included in Numbers in the Dark and Other Stories, a posthumous collection that was published by Pantheon later that year. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So for a 22-year-old, Calvino gives a kind of um, cynical portrait of love in (laughs) this story. To say the least, yes. Um, You know, he has that line, after that you realize that the other girls were like this too, that you two are like this, that we all are. Everything she does is boring as if repeated in A Thousand Mirrors by girlfriend. It's sort of of, um, like Groundhog Day. (laughs) Exactly. The girl keeps coming to your room. Every girl you meet is the same girl. Yeah. And and of course, you're the same person that she's endlessly meeting as well. Right. So so boredom follows swiftly. He was awfully young to be bored about love. (laughs) I know. It's true. It's true. And and I mean, he was, um, as he grew older, quite energetic about love, I think. Mm -hmm. Not bored. No, not at all bored. I think he was quite a... Quite the ladies' man. Right. Mm. What do you think of this as a love story? I don't think it's a love story. I think it's I think it's a sort of story about solipsism. It's a story about somebody's absorbed in themselves so much and that external things just become an aspect of, of him. I suppose it's I mean if it's a love story, it's not a very happy one. Oh, it's perhaps a, a love story about things. As you were saying, that it seems that the center of this story is that 
idea, that line where he says, we mustn't separate things from thoughts. Yes, yes. And that's really what the story is about. And, yeah. and, uh, and so towards the end of the story, when he starts whispering into her dimple, mm-hmm. <laughs> completely random connections, you know, it's, it's, it's really a way of breaking what he thinks of as the tyranny of the way in which thinking gets in the way of being. Right. Is it also a story about writing? I mean, obviously, words and things are not the same. Yes. Thoughts and things are not the same. Yes, it is. So it is. I think that it's a. It's. It's in that sense. I suppose postmodern. Um, he, he seems to be fighting something. He is, you know, and this is early Calvino. The later on, he became very involved with the French Ulipo group, so the, the, the French surrealists who include Georges Perec and so on, and and this kind of experimentation with the meaning of language and so on, you know, um, and the nature of language and the way sometimes language gets in the way of meaning you mm-hmm. know, uh, is something that they all that they all played around with. Yeah. I mean, this made me think of someone much more concrete, which is William Carlos Williams and, and Patterson and No Ideas But in Things. Yes. And this sort of insistence, writerly insistence on the idea of not going too far from reality, which is funny since we were talking about this being a story on the cusp of Calvino's taking flight. Going into fabulism, um, yes. I mean, here he's still clinging on to mm-hmm. the idea that there is a thing called the real, that his his character's obsessions kind of get in the way of. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, um, I mean, he was, you know, he was a, I think in many ways he was a philosopher who never wrote any philosophy but worked it out in fiction instead. Mm-hmm. And had the saving grace of comedy. I mean, I think the thing, the thing about this story is that if it wasn't funny, it would be unbearable. Yeah. He's full, of, he's full of symbols he doesn't understand. I mean, as he says that he spent his childhood making the world symbolic, looking out of his window and seeing symbols and things. And I think Calvino is that kind of writer, actually. I mean, he, if you look at some of his books, I mean, like when he wrote um, The Castle of Cross Destinies, he, he uses the tarot pack mm-hmm. as a way of explaining reality. And, of course, that's a whole series of symbols. You yeah. know? So he never entirely shook that right. uh, sense of the symbolic. And what do you think he wants from the symbols here? I mean, he wants he, – he says he grew up in this castle of meaning and, and everything he's ascribing some meaning to. And yet he says the mammoth is a symbol. He doesn't know what it's a symbol no. of. You know, there is no meaning there. I think he's in, in a funny way – knows that he's trapped in this symbolic universe that he's invented for himself. And that's why everything repeats and everything is the same, and et cetera. And I, mean, I think, not that he's entirely conscious of it, that he's looking for a way out of that. Mm-hmm. And, and um, well, it's a short story. I don't think he gets, I don't think he makes it. He doesn't it. quite get there. I don't think he makes it. Well, there's so, so then there's, the, you know, these stories he brings up of these other girls and you know this girl wants to know who the other ones were and and where and so on but his whole point is that each of these love stories has somehow been frustrated it's not clear by what by the fact that he was in a tram that went over some pylons and he suddenly felt empty or you know well i think he's somebody who's again he seems to find it seems to find it very easy to have relationships with large numbers of girls and i mean a girl in every port it seems right but I mean, that's what I meant when I said Groundhog Day. He seems to be stuck in a kind of repetition that he can't escape. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and that becomes very rapidly boring. And then, you know, by girlfriend. 
Yeah, by girlfriend. <laughs> We've got by village, by girlfriend. Yeah. Um. I mean, those are the, the, one of the things that makes the story work is that these sort of things become funnier each time. Yeah. You know, the, the, those abrupt goodbyes. And actually the way in which he names the girls rather rather formally. <laughs> you know, the town was such and such, the girl was so and so. It was on this mountain, yeah. yeah. I mean, he talks about Don Juan as this sad hero, you know, full of sadness and solitude. Well, um, that's him, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's, that's him. Yeah. And then at the same time, he's so young. Why is this, you know, they, they have this moment the girl arrives, they have this sort of tussle and it leads to this... Weary, weary kiss, and he and he says that that is love. Yeah, that is that tussling, that tussling, ending in weariness, <laughs> <laughs> is love, which is, which is sad. But I mean, I do think that the Don Juan reference is a kind of key to that. I think, I think in some ways he's writing about Don Juan as a tragedy, mm-hmm. you know, somebody cursed to endlessly repeat liaisons with women, but not be able to love. Right. Yeah, you never actually get to that, that no, which, which the Maria Mirella talks yeah. about yeah. in the story, the thing that you're supposed to get to, which perhaps she will only get to by being either a mother or a prostitute. Yeah. It's sort of a hilarious <laughs> idea for a young woman. She's dreamed of being a prostitute. It, it never actually happened. You the know, things her she dreams, dreams about don't true. happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's her tragedy. <laughs> and she's clearly not a writer, but she actually... Um, you know, she's in the story to have a bit more sense. Yes. At yeah. the same time, she has that wonderful image of her boyfriend as as the bear in the cave and the the thing she turns to to protect her from her from fear him. of him. Yes, yes. I love that. I think that's the most beautiful line in the story in a way, that, she, and that, I, that she's cuddled up to him in order to, so that he can protect her. From himself. From himself. <laughs> <laughs> or from her fear of him. From and her fear you, of him. And you wonder what, the, what that fear is. Well, it may be to do with... You know, I imagine that in the same way as he's been repeating liaisons with variations of the same girl, <laughs> she's been repeating liaisons with variations of the same man, and and all of those are failures. Yeah. You know, so she yeah. so she has that fear, the fear that this also will be will be terrible in the end. Mm-hmm. So, well, then let let's talk about the ending because we get to this kind of amazing last couple of paragraphs and it seems that to me that the entire thing is this protracted metaphor for sex you know we have the the mm. sea rearing its white belly and the, the lowlands flooded and that that lone peasant raising his pitchfork you know, <laughs> yes. and, and they're just swept away no. um, I think that's probably true yeah I think it probably is some kind of highly symbolic or even symbolist mm-hmm. representation of sex, which which we've been we've been warned that this is somebody who sees the world through symbols. Through symbols. Except that this happens right at the moment where he seems to have conquered this separation of thoughts and things. Yeah. Or he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of both a both a showing off and a giving up. Yeah, it's a very strange last paragraph. And I mean, I, uh, there's a bit of me that thinks that's the 22-year-old writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think a kind of more grown-up Calvino might have deleted that. At the same time, it's sort of wonderful. I mean, it, it feels so much like him taking pleasure yes. in the writing, yes, in but the I, act I think, of writing. Know, you, I, I just felt that if, if the story were to end in the, at the end of the paragraph before, with the two of them, you know, the great wind has taken our top floor and is carrying, is carrying them across the skies, etc. I just think, I mean, actually, 
it's a it's a clearer ending. I mean, I think it's. I mean, I don't know. What am I doing editing? Cult, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's the mature writer's ending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. One of the sort of beautiful stories that I learned about him after he died from his wife was that when he was very young, as I say, and he's writing this column for Unita. The column in the end sort of made up a, a world in which he would inhabit. And his last words when he, after he had this stroke and he, he mostly lost consciousness, but he briefly regained consciousness. And he said, according to his wife, his last word, he said, Giovanni di Marsalia, phenomenologico. And as she said, Giovanni of Barsalia, phenomenologist. Mm-hmm. And she said that she knew him so well that she could hear the punctuation, that there was, <laughs> that, that, that at the end of the line there was a comma. And that, that's something rather beautiful about Calvino ending on a comma. <laughs> Except but, you wonder what was to come. Well, she got very, she got obsessed with Giovanni of Marsalia, who was this, you know. And mm-hmm. so, like, after he died, she asked all the kind of great Italian intellectuals, you know, Calasso, Eco, etc. Do you know about Giovanni of Marsalia? And they all said, no, they'd never heard of him. And then when she was clearing out boxes and looking at the box which contained some of, the, the, some of those columns he'd written when, when very, very young, she discovered that he'd invented a Marxist paradise, which was called Marxalia with an X, and that at a certain point, the X had become an S and it had become Marsalia. Hmm. Um, so rather extraordinary to think that at the very, very last moment of his life, he reverted to thinking about those very first little brief right. moments of but fiction. A, a character. Yeah. And I mean, the character was, I think he was making up, but he revisited Marsalia, hmm. you know, his Marxist paradise at the very end. You know, I wonder, um, coming back to this story, mm. if, if there's significance to the fact that this was written in 1946, right after the yeah. the war. Um, and as you said, he'd, been, he'd written some quite realist fiction involving, involving the war and, and, and political things. Um, but he does have this line in the story, our generation must reconquer things themselves, which stands out to me when you think that they've, Conquering has obviously been a huge issue yeah. for his generation, and also that nothing has really been more real than what's just happened. I think that's right. I think this whole generation of post-war Italian artists, whether they were writers or visual artists or filmmakers, all had to wrestle with what had just happened. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were Vittorio De Sica or Roberto Rossellini, you you reacted by making extremely naturalistic, what in England came to be called kitchen sink realism. And if you were a painter, this was the period when there was the, the rise of what was called arte povera, you know, which was just back to basics yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think there was that sense of having to go back to basics and look at the, the roots of things, you know. And I think here, in a way, what he's doing is trying to go back to the roots of language and how language relates to the thing that it describes. Yeah, it just seems remarkable to say that a rifle is just a symbol. Just a symbol. When you've just come out of the war. I know. I mean, there's a kind of Magritte thing, you know, that this is not a pipe. (laughs) (laughs) But a a lathe is real, but a rifle is symbolic. Yeah, exactly. Very strange. And I just feel that I feel in all of early Calvino, as I think in the filmmakers and the artists, this kind of wrestling with having just emerged from fascism. You know, having just emerged from Mussolini and trying to see what what their world is. Mm-hmm. 
And to build, to, to break out of the castle of meaning. Yes. And find, find things like that dimple, perhaps. That dimple, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a wonderful moment, the dimple, because it's actually yeah. the most tender moment mm-hmm. in, in, in what is otherwise not a very tender portrait of love. No. <laughs> <laughs> Except that at the end, you have them kind of emerging victoriously from the house, racing past the, yes. the landlady before she can look yes. into their eyes and see what they've just done. Yes, you I know, love the that, landlady who's going to be strangled. That, I mean, that's a... That's the one moment of surrealism that really, you know, <laughs> stands out in this story. Especially if she's in every house. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> every town he goes to. And the, and the typesetters have already laid out the headline. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Well, that sense of the world being inevitable, mm-hmm. you know, is, is mm-hmm. something that the, the narrator feels trapped in. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think he's even describes love as being a part of of that inevitability, that it will always run a certain course, you know, and that you can't escape, that there will be this moment, this scratching, biting moment, you know, which which is which is love. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to be rapidly followed by boredom exactly. <laughs> and by girlfriend. I suppose it's, you know, it's just a sign that it is really, truly a young man's story. Yes. You know, he has, he, he doesn't have any idea what surprises are still out there for him. Yes, I mean, it is, that's quite right. I mean, I think it's a story which affects wisdom mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> without actually perhaps possessing right. as much wisdom as it affects. It's, it's, it's falsely jaded yeah. in that way, yeah. except, except that it does, I, you know, there, there's a case to be made for not having that ending, but it does end on this note of full jubilance. Yes. I mean, the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to, 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 to read it is that it does seem like this transitional moment in his writing and that what came after this were these these fables which which he de- wrote to be deliberately as kind of crystal clear as this story is mysterious and opaque you know mm-hmm. so so he somehow got away from or went th- worked his way through this kind of symbolist abstraction mm-hmm. you know and and arrived at very beautiful sim- simplicity you know so the the non-existent night which is about an empty suit of armor that believes it's a knight of the Emperor Charlemagne and, and keeps itself going, as he says at one point, by willpower and strict adherence to the rules of chivalry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean it's, it's very, very funny and completely clear. It's not, it's not in any sense. I mean, this story is quite complex, I think, in, 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 and to understand it is quite complicated. But he seemed to go through that and arrive at, an, at a simpler place. Right. And to end his life on the the idea of a phenomenologist. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Well, you know, he he was so varied in his writing, formally as well. I mean, I think he's one of the writers who constantly changes form. I mean, like you know, the Baron in the Trees is not like Invisible Cities, and he played with form, and I think that that's where he really was affected by the French surrealists, by people like George Perec and Raymond Cano. Mm-hmm. and other members of the Ulipo group, the exper- experimentation with, with form and how you tell a story or what is the story that you're telling. I mean, Invisible Cities, in a way, is a book of fragments but somehow connects up to being the story of Marco Polo and <laughs> Kublai Khan, you know. One of the reasons, I think, that writers are influenced by Calvino is that he is so different all the time. And do you see his work still having an effect 
now on on younger writers? I don't know what people read anymore. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I really don't. I, I I have no idea what people are reading <laughs> anymore. Uh, I know that Calvino himself. There was a tendency during his lifetime in Italy for him to be this weird fellow on the margins. Fabulous. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, death being such an excellent career move, <laughs> <laughs> he immediately moved into the center right. and, and, has, and has remained there. And, but I don't know. I don't know if anybody reads Calvino anymore. <laughs> You'll have to ask somebody much younger than me. Well, maybe they will now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Saman. Thank you. Italo Calvino, who died in 1985 at the age of 61, was the author of Cosmic Comics, Invisible Cities, and If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, among other works of fiction. His story, The Daughters of the Moon, was featured on an earlier episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. Salman Rushdie's 12th novel, The Golden House, will be published later this year. His memoir, Joseph Anton, came out in 2012. He's been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 1987. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of the New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>